Hello, hello. All right, I've got to start all over again. Okay. No, I won't. Okay. I, I, I lived right there. My parents did on Browning Avenue. Uh, my dad was, uh, came to uh, Manhattan. He was stationed at Fort Riley. He was a colonel. Uh, he uh, retired after we were here for two years. Then he went to K-State. He got his PhD. And then uh, I, long story, I went to KU. I wasn't a Christian while I lived here. And I went to KU in Lawrence. And my first semester at KU, I had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ. And God changed me forever and ever. Amen. So I, I'm, I'm excited about being here. I um, think about Manhattan often and just the importance of this is in not only in our state, but in our entire country and uh, with K-State. Uh, I think God is really stirring the waters to do something incredibly amazing in the hearts and lives of people. I think that the times in which we live uh, are such that the Holy Spirit is going to match uh, the efforts of the enemies of God with the same force and greater. And uh, I believe God is just getting started. And He is wanting to cause our hearts to awaken, awaken to His Word, awaken to His kingdom, in such a way that we begin to understand what the forces of darkness are trying to accomplish. And that when we, we know what God is wanting to do, it's easy to understand the counterfeits. And I think He is looking for people. God, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro across the face of the earth, looking to the hearts who are fully His that He can support. There's a lot there. But I want to specifically talk to you this morning. The title of this morning's message is, It's All Red. It's All Red. Um, in the early 2000s, there was a, I became aware of a group of Christians that were out of a, somewhat of a, uh, I don't know if it's an accurate frustration at the time, but they, they were of the opinion that Jesus was getting a bad rap. And, and so they began to think in terms of, and they called themselves red-letter Christians. Red-letter Christians. And basically what that meant is that they were going to devote themselves to the red parts of the Bible, the, the red parts of the Bible. And if you know, they would be limited predominantly to the Gospels. And those were, the, if you have a, 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 a Bible that does this, that Jesus, what Jesus actually spoke or is quoted at, those verses or those portions are in red. And over time, I started thinking about that, and I came up with, wait, no, no, whether I don't completely agree with the, the premise of the lead redder, lead, red letter Christians, uh, I did think about this, it's that it's, the Bible, it's all red, right? It's all red. It's all God's Word. It's all red, and it should be read. So let's, let's, let's begin at Matthew 5, 17, because uh, these, these verses predominantly that we're looking at, they're red, all right? So 
and it's interesting, the red letter Christians oftentimes didn't even look at these red letters. So uh, Matthew 5.17 says, do not think, here's it, do not think. Now, I, I, I do love Jesus. I love Jesus for a lot of reasons. But I think of him as a master communicator. He was, he was incredibly, uh, I, I know you guys were going through the parables and Jonathan never told me that. I would have gone through some of my favorite parables. That's okay. We're doing, it's all red. All right. So uh, I, what we have to understand is that these words have meaning. And so if you think about this, if you tell someone, do not think something, right? Do not think, right? You're saying that because there's a, there's a, a highly likelihood that they will what? Be tempted to think, right? To think that. So I want us to step back for a moment and just understand that Jesus is telling the people there on the sermon, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, that day as he's speaking, he's telling those people there, do not think. Why? Because in the future there's going to be pressure put on people to think, think in a way that Jesus is telling them not to. And think about this. Do not think that I've came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, when we think about this, you know, we have to understand that it, it, it reminds me of something when it says, Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It harkens me back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There's a constant, it's a constant strategy of the enemy of God and our an enemy of humanity to undermine the things that God has said. And then when he undermines the things that God says, he, is, he becomes successful at leading humanity and individuals astray from the truth and even the reality that is presented in the words that God has communicated to us. And it's the strategy of the enemy to say in many ways, did God really say? It's for us to question the authenticity and the authority that we give God's Word to direct our thoughts, our actions, and our attitudes. And so that is a common thing uh, that the enemy does. And so Matthew 5.18 goes on in this Sermon on the Mount. It says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, now, again, let's think about this. Think about it in a sense that all of the world has, has fashioned themselves and has joined themselves in an attempt to undermine what? What God has said. So that we begin to be disconnected from the reality that is given to us as we see the world through the lens of the Word of God. To question, for us to begin to question 
the word of God. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, look at what, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away, will pass from, from the law until all is accomplished. You know, it's, it's, imp- it's important to rejuvenate our heart and our faith to understand that God's gift to us is His Word. It's a gift for our benefit. And to help us see the world. I mean, how many of you now, if you in the last three years, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm not calling anybody. Um, I won't call anybody out uh, if you either raise your hand or not raise your hand. But just think about this. Like, How many of you are like me? That after three years, the last three years, you're not surprised when you realize that the, the, the culture, the world, the, the mainstream media is out and out lied to you. It's no longer, to me, I'm not even surprised by it anymore. And it's to understand that the reality, that the truth that comes from God's Word. And so, you know, it's this, it's this, it's this understanding that God wants to give in, put in our heart that His Word is true. Not just, not just this part, but not that part. But not one iota, not one dot will ever pass away. Now, that's so important that Matthew 24 Verse 35, it kind of repeats this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Which, which part of God's word is going to pass away? So important that Mark said the same thing in Mark 13, 31. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So important that Luke repeated the same thing in Luke 21, verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, you know, there's, there, the, the Bible does have authority. Whether it's recognized by individuals, accepted by individuals, is another thing. But the Bible is true, and, it, and Jesus says, and the Gospels say, Jesus says, that these words will not pass away. Heaven and earth, you'll pass away. You know, it's you'll pass away, and the word will be like, hey man, told you, it's going to outlast you. It's important for us to grasp this because all the forces of darkness are aligning themselves to undermine the worldview that the Bible gives us. It's important. So I want to talk to you this morning in the several hours that we have together. (laughs) Three lies against biblical authority. Three lies against biblical authority. These are lies that are told. These are lies that are told to persuade people to think what they read in the Bible is not applicable in any real way to govern their thoughts, to, to form their thinking, to, perform, to, to inform their attitudes, or to inform their actions. Like what the Bible says. Has, should have authority in our life to govern. And these lies are told to undermine. The, the lies like the original one that I mentioned. Did God really say? You know, if you think about that, that was that crafty way of undermining. Okay, let's get to the first lie. The first one is 
the Bible we have today has been edited from the original version, right? How many of you have ever heard that? Like, oh, the Bible that we have today, it's not like the, what they originally wrote because, you know, those, those monks got a hold of it or those ancient scribes got a hold of it and, you know, they had an agenda. There was, a, there was an agenda of a power grab and they twisted the words to emphasize and to justify, you know, what they wanted to see happen. Right? So, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, man, the Bible, you know, granted the Bible that you have in front of you this morning or on your phone is in English, unless, you know, you, you are reading the Spanish or something. But it's, it's not in the, probably, it's not in Greek or Hebrew, you know. But we're going to look at why that what we have in front of us is, is highly, according to, to historians, has high validity that it is accurate. And we're going to look at some of these things. Uh, some of the points that I'm making in this moment and this t- is, is from a very good book. It's called, Is Atheism Dead? by Eric Metaxas. How many of you ever heard of Eric Metaxas? All right, Eric Metaxas is a phenomenal writer. I think he actually is a very powerful voice in the Christian uh, um, West right now. He's, he's done some, did biography on Bonhoeffer. Uh, he did um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He did a biography on Martin Luther that's been well regarded um, on uh, the, the uh, um, book entitled Amazing Grace about how the, the slave trade in England Ended. He wrote a recent book, even more recent than this book, called Letter to the American Church, which is very powerful. But in this book, if you're a college student and you got like, okay, I got a few more weeks here before school, this would be something that, man, get it, get it on Kindle or whatever. It's not that expensive. It is amazing. This is an amazing book. He first talk, starts talking about science and scientific discovery and really makes the incredible point that Atheism is illogical. And if you're on a college campus today, you know, you're just told like, oh, Christianity, that's outdated. Oh, it's not logical. It's like, got to take a leap of faith. No. The leap of faith, the blind leap of faith is atheism. Because the world, like it says in, in Romans, that all of creation gives evidence for the Creator. And the more scientific discovery that comes, the more evidence there is, evidence, not necessarily proof, but evidence that there had to be an intelligent being orchestrating creation and the universe, the origin. It's just phenomenal. But in this book, he talks about one thing uh, that I'm going to talk about. talks a lot of it, but this thing. There's two basic criteria by which historians judge a manuscript. Okay? I'm not not trying to uh, get too heady here, but Let's just, let's just think about this. Like, what, how do historians evaluate whether a manuscript is authentic? In other words, that the manuscript that they have in their hand, you know, that is a copy of the original, how, how or, or is, is the original, how do they determine its degree of authenticity and accurateness? There's two criteria. One is the chronological distance between the manuscript in hand, which, which is probably a copy, and the original manuscript from which it was copied. So how long 
is the distance of time from the original to the copy or manuscript we have in hand. All right, and the second uh, criteria is how many of those manuscripts, copies are there? Right, how many of those copies are out there? Because if, if there's a lot of copies, you can, under, you can look at, is this, are these copies all the same? Well, that would give validity to all those copies. And if there's one copy that's contrary to the other copies, you could say that's a one-off fraud, right? There's too many that, that are, have integrity that this one is probably not a good, accurate copy. All right, so how, that's again. So here's a little chart. Can, oh my gosh, can you guys see that in the back? All right, you got better eyesight than me. All right, so how many of you believe that Julius Caesar existed and wrote some stuff? Raise your hand. All right, cool. Some of you in the back, you don't care much about Julius Caesar. All right. So Julius Caesar, original writing, was originally, his writings were originally written in 100 B.C., 100 years, you know, before Christ. The earliest copies that we have of his manuscripts are from 900 A.D. You do the math. That's 1,000 years, right? And we have a number of copies of, though his, of these manuscripts from 900 A.D. It's 10. All right? Plato, originally written in 400 B.C. How many of you think the university... Uh, Kansas State University has high regard for Plato's writings, right? Yes, right? They, no one's over there. Plato never existed. Or his writings are a fraud. No, no one. I, I mean, if, probably, maybe there's one crazy person there, but I, I'm not, not going to risk my life on it. But same thing, 900 A.D. How many years is that? 1,300. How many copies? Seven. Aristotle, 330 B.C. Aristotle, my, come on. They probably have a statue over there of him. All right, 900 A.D. again, roughly 12, 1230 or 70, whatever. Number of copies, five, all right? But do you hear anybody talk about how, man, you just can't trust what the, the Plato's Republic, right? No, freaks. All right. <laughs> New Testament, what, 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 when was it originally written? Well, between 50 and 100 A.D., right? What's the earliest copies we have? 382 A.D., What's the di how many years difference is that? It's like, oh, you know, 282, whatever, 282 years. Now, that doesn't include manuscripts we have of the church fathers who quoted the scriptures, which would be much earlier than that. How many number of copies do we have from 382 A.D. thanks to, you know, those monks that you slammed earlier? And the Irish, How the Irish Saved Civilization, awesome book. It's the Irish monks that preserved a lot of these documents. Crazy. How many copies do you have? Oh, well, there's, probably, there's probably 20, maybe? No, 13,000. 13,000. So, you know, reasonable historians know, hey, the scriptures are valid and they're authentic. 
right? 13,000, you're going to find who's the off. So anybody comes out, oh, whoops. It's a booby trap. So let <laughs> me come up. Oh, you know, they, man, the Catholic Church, they manipulated and changed it or, you know, whatever. Martin, no, they got it right there. They have those in hand. They know what says. All right. That's not even the most amazing thing. And what I am surprised about is that, the, that this, what I'm about ready to talk to you is not... Do you, ever, do you ever find a piece of information going on in the world and you're like, whoa, that is incredible. How come the media isn't covering it? You know, that's what I think that the Dead Sea Scrolls... What the Dead Sea Scrolls... How many of you here have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Probably everybody, right? Okay. But the story behind the Dead Sea Scrolls is really pretty miraculous. A, t- a 12-year-old Bedouin shepherd boy... Uh, in, in the area of, of the Dead Sea, uh, l- was shepherding goats, and one of his goats got out, and so he left the flock, you know, and he went out after that one goat. That, that's like, okay, that's like a parable. There, hey, I fulfilled the sign out front. That's a parable. So the Bedouin boy went out looking for the goat, and on the cliffs near the Dead Sea, saw this deep cave that he couldn't see the bottom of. And so thinking that he was trying to find the goat, got a rock, and he hurled that rock down into that cave. And to his amazement, he didn't hear rock hit rock or rock hit goat. What he heard was rock hit pottery. He crawled down in there and discovered what's the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That it was an amazing that these documents had been preserved. One, because of the climate around the Dead Sea, and the fact, for whatever reason, that the scrolls were written on untanned uh, uh, skins. So they were miraculously, marvelously preserved for 20 centuries. And in 19, that's in 1947. And so as they, they were kind of held up, they didn't like, you know, the, 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 the museums got them and they had to, you know, look them over and, you know, and it wasn't really, they, they kind of slow walked this discovery. But in his book, Metaxas writes this, surely the largest jewels in this dazzling treasury were the 2,000 year old copies of the 37 books of the Bible. The Old Testament has 39. This was 37. 37 books which show that what we possess today as our own Bible is precisely the same as what existed then. Never in human history has an observed absence of change so instantly and dramatically changed everything. So that is, that is like, okay... Any, any right, if, if people don't give the Bible credit for having a, a, a integrity towards the original, cannot, have, have, cannot say that about any other historic document of that age, of that time. So, uh, 
Matthew 5, 17, just reading this again. Do not think, again, that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a dot. Well, you know, you got to think, not a dot, not an iota. God governed His Word that He preserved it. Because why? Because His Word will not pass away. And so, here we see, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, um, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You know, uh, that, that's just amazing, and how it should help us to realize that, you know, what God wrote, what God had humans write, inspired by the Holy Spirit, really matters. And it should draw our attention and our allegiance to it. That we should allow it to govern our lives, not other things. And we need it now more than ever because we live in a world in need of values and morals. And those things aren't over. All right, the second lie is is, uh, the old covenant has commandments, right? You've probably heard this in some similar ways. The old covenant has commandments. We have faith, love, and feelings. You know, the idea is like there's this idea that's kind of subtle, but it's like there's an Old Testament God, right? There's an Old Testament God, and now we're in the New Testament, and God has changed. Wow, where's... that's? But it's subtle, right? It's like... Mean God, nice God. Commandments, no commandments, no. Just faith, whatever faith is. Love, whatever love is. But feelings, oh yeah, feelings. You know, when we think about that, you know, this idea, like God's changed, like as if God changed. Look, God didn't change. What Jesus did gave man the potential to change, called transformation. And so, yes, that he desires to birth in us, not things opposed to the law, but he wants to birth in us the desires that would do the moral law that God had written in the Old Testament. That it would come out of a heart of, a heart of faith and obedience and allegiance But here, I'm going to read this verse 19 and just want to give you a little moment here to tell you, red letter alert. Again, red letter, this is what Jesus said, verse 19. Therefore, think about this in terms of all these issues of our day and what Jesus said. Therefore, whoever what? Relaxes. I hear, I I see a lot of relaxing. And and I'm not a prude. I'm I'm not a mean guy. But I'm just care about humanity. I care about the things that God cares about because God cares about people. And there is a a forces of darkness coming to destroy humanity and human flourishing. And God has given His truth to us to help us ward off the forces of darkness by understanding that comes through having your heart and mind put on the truth. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. That's what Jesus said. Relaxing. So when people look at the Bible with this lie operating in their mouths and their mouths in their minds, right? When they look at the Bible and they have this lie operating in their minds, they break God's commands because they believe their feelings, perceived needs, or hardships are more have more weight than God's word. You think about that. Next time you're in an engagement of some kind of moral issue, whether it be homosexuality, transgenderism, or, or, or premarital sex, or living with your girlfriend before you're married, anything like that, and you, what you will hear is feelings about, you know, oh, but out of an empathy rather than about the truth of what God's word. And do you think God's uptight? You think God's like, oh, man, you know, that's, oh, that creeps me out. No, it's not. It's that he cares about human beings and he knows what he made and he knows the forces that are come against humans that cause them to, to deteriorate into moral decay. And that as a culture, you know, of responsibilities towards our fellow humans, when we begin to live in that manner, we begin to violate those other human beings around us. And so if we go to a movie like Sounds of Freedom and we look and see what's going on with, you know, child trafficking, you know, it should be in some sense it's like that is the direct outcome of a culture that has put aside God's truth and have begin to, begin to affirm people's desires and feelings above the truth of God's word that is like a, a, a help to us to curb our lives according to his will because he wants the best for us. And that, that's like you, can, you could go, you know, you, you, you can't answer the empathy you know, there's the, the empathy of people. Oh, the empathy. And I'm not talking about being mean. I'm not talking about being rude. I'm talking to having a, a conviction in your heart of what's true and having a love for Jesus and a love for humans. And out of that heart, you portray reality in a way that they may not become accustomed to or have not become accustomed to. But the reality is, is that we presented it in such a way as an alternative to where, where the culture is going and the destruction of humanity, of human lives, the breakdown of the family, the brokenness of children, children being raised in foster care. Why? Well, how has that happened? Well, it just didn't happen overnight. So we see that. Brings me to the... the uh, the last lie. These aren't all the only lies, but these are the three that I liked. The third one is, the Pharisees' problem was their legalism. Okay, I mean, that... I mean, it's... I don't, think, I don't know how this happened, but it's almost like the church in America has presented the... You know, that the Pharisees were these morally uptight 
individuals, our, our, our group of people. And that what Jesus, he, he, was, he was challenging their legalism. Like, hey man, you're putting these laws on people. But that's really not what the accurate, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says that Jesus said about the Pharisees. What did Jesus primarily say about the Pharisees? They were hypocrites. Hypocrites. And you know what a hypocrite is? Somebody who says they are one thing and they aren't that. That's what, that's what the, and not only were they hypocrites, they were corrupt. They were corrupt. And so it's important for us, and ultimately what the Pharisees' problem was is their unbelief. They didn't really believe. They were using God's word and the religion for their own benefit. They really didn't believe the word of God. They didn't have a vibrant relationship with Yahweh. They were settling for a form of religion without its power, right? And that's where we have to realize that, man, God is awakening our hearts and our lives to understand. All right, I'm closing, which is I'm really closing. Sometimes I say I'm closing, and I'm, or I say I'm beginning to close, but now I'm really closing. Anyway, Matthew 5.20 Here's this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So I want us to understand that God is wanting to do something. He's wanting us to come alive to the truth. He wants us to be encouraged. I mean, you all are here today. You know, you made a decision to come. You had other choices. And so, you know, it's many ways preaching to the choir. You know, we're, we're in this together. You know, we're, we're trying to become what God had in mind when he created us. We want to be what God wants us to be. These lies in, affect us. They influence our thinking. They undermine our confidence to know that God is true. God is real. His word is real. It is true. It's not just true that it's true that it was written and it's authentic to the original. It's true in that it is. It accurately describes the reality in which we live. And if we break God's word, we're operating in conflict with reality, and there are consequences to pay when you operate contrary to the reality of the world and life as we live it. Right? And so here God presents uh, encouragement to us to cause our hearts to rise up, to see the world as He sees it, and to allow God to activate us in this world with the one life that we have to offer him, to give him glory. Amen. Amen. Stand up and uh, see, let's all stand up together. Stand up. Give the Lord a shout.